1 Thessalonians chapter 3, of course, that is the theme of these two books, sorry, 2 Thessalonians, not 1 Thessalonians, we were in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. We'll be looking there at the first five verses of chapter 3. And let's go ahead and read our text for tonight, and then we'll get into the, the message. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse number 1, Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers, Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, For all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Heavenly Father, would you help us tonight? Would you... Bless this time around your word. We need you to minister to our hearts. We need you to help us to understand what you have placed here and preserved here for us. We need you to help us to see the correlation with our own lives. And we need you to help us take what we see here and live it out in our world in this very next week um, that we have. And in these days, these last days that we have to live for you. Father, would you just direct and guide in every word that's spoken and every thought that, that is, is mentioned here tonight? Would you be honored and glorified? I need you tonight, and I pray that you'd work through your word. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Well, have you ever lacked motivation to pray? Maybe you looked at your prayer list you know, the things that we're commanded to, we're supposed to as Christians, things that we're supposed to pray for. You saw that list, you knew that you needed and you ought to pray for those things, but you just simply lack the, the drive, the passion, the motivation to pray for them as you should. I know I, I have. I don't know about you. I, I've been there. And in these, this very unique passage that's in front of us here tonight, I think we see very clearly not only the need for our prayers in a very specific context, but also the confidence that we need in the faithfulness of God in order for, for us to have that motivation to pray for those things as we ought. And so tonight, with the Lord's help, I'd like to talk to you about prayer and faithfulness. Prayer and faithfulness. And not our faithfulness in prayer, but instead the focus of God's faithfulness. And we'll see that in just a second. So Paul has already laid out already to this point in, in our study, we've seen he's laid out the main emphasis of his epistle. And that main emphasis was the doctrine, it is the doctrine of the end times, specifically the eschatology of the man of sin. All right, we, we know him as the Antichrist, 
and how he's going to come and when he's going to come and exactly what's going to take place. Paul's already laid that out in chapter number two. He's also clearly laid the foundation, laid out the pre-tribulation rapture of the saints. And he's done that pretty clearly. And so if you, if you ever run into somebody who is a little bit uh, not quite uh, scriptural in that doctrine, you can go to 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and it's pretty clearly laid out. That is the whole emphasis of chapter number 2. The believers in Thessalonica were concerned. They thought, perhaps we've missed the rapture. Perhaps the, ra- the rapture is during the tribulation or after the tribulation. Somehow we missed it. And Paul's like, no, 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 you haven't. You haven't missed it. God will take care of you. Everything is going to be fine and then, of course, he, we saw last week, he dealt with the contrast that, that ought to characterize our lives as believers as we live today, knowing that that day is coming in the future, knowing that Jesus is going to return in the future. It's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. We're still here. How should we live has been the, really the, the theme of our whole study. How should we live in these last days in the contrast between our lives and and our character and the the darkness that is still to come. Now, as Paul concludes this epistle, this is the final chapter, chapter 3. As he concludes the epistle, he has really one final request as well as one final command. And you can see that command in verse number 6. We're not going to deal with that tonight for sake of time. We'll save it for next week or or next time we're in, in our study Um, But specifically, we want to look at the request that Paul makes and learn some lessons about prayer and faithfulness. First of all, I'd like you to notice in chapter 3, in the first three verses, notice that there is an exhortation to pray. Paul says, finally, I'm I'm concluding uh, my remarks. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. This is an exhortation to pray by Paul, the evangelist, to the church that he has started. He planted there in the city of Thessalonica. He says, brethren, pray for us. Pray. What does it mean to pray? Well, prayer is speaking to God. Prayer is, in this specific context, speaking to God on behalf of someone else. The biblical word for this is the idea of interceding or intercession. What Paul is requesting, what Paul is exhorting them to do is to intercede on his behalf. Now this is something that is obviously very important to the Apostle Paul because it's a repeat of the same exact request from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 25 where he says, Brethren, pray for us. Same request. It's the same request that he sent just a few months before when he sent the first epistle to the Thessalonians, pray for us. And now he's writing the second epistle to the Thessalonians and he says, again, brethren, pray for us. You get the idea, you get the picture that this was something that was extremely important to Paul. This was something of utmost importance to him. And you notice the request is worded in the same way twice. 1 Thessalonians 5, brethren, pray for us. 2 Thessalonians 3, finally, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. Us. Who is us? Well, it is those who are participating in writing this letter. You say, well, I thought that was Paul. Well, it, it is. He is the, 
the primary driver. But if you were to, to just glance back to chapter number one, you would notice that it's Paul. But not only Paul, it's Silvanus, Silas, and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians. And so Paul says, not just pray for me, but pray for us. This is not a self-focused request. Would you think about me? Would you pray for me? But it is prayer for the entire evangelistic team. Pray for us. Pray for me, Paul, but pray for Silas. Pray for Timothy. Pray for all those that are a part of what we're trying to do. Pray for us. And I'm exhorting, I'm encouraging, I'm asking this of you as my brethren. In other words, as brethren, we're on the same team. We're in the same family. We're in this together. We've got the same goals. We're unified behind the one focus, and that is to bring glory to our heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for us, brethren. Now, we see this request in other places. Let me just show a couple of them to you. Romans 15 and verse 30. There's some exciting possibilities here for us as believers to pray for those that are accomplishing and, and pursuing after the ministry and ministering the truth to other people. In Romans 15.30, Paul wrote, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now think about the, the potential that is there for you. Perhaps you, uh, you as an average you know, church member, you might look at those who are evangelists, they're, they're missionaries, they're, they're preachers, they're in full-time service, and you, could, and you say, wow, they know so much about the Bible, they can, they can uh, preach, they can teach, they can, they can talk, they can reach people far beyond uh, what I could do, and, and who am I in comparison to them? What Paul says is here, you can strive together with me in your prayers. In other words, you can join the team. You can be an important part of the task and an important part of the accomplishment of preaching the gospel to the nations that are around. Church member, it does not matter if, if you've only been saved for you know, a, a couple of months, a couple of weeks. Maybe you've, you, you just became a church member. You don't think yourself of, of, of anything or of any certain level. But in your prayers, you can join arms with an evangelist of the gospel and strive together with them in prayer. Now, think of what this would be like. You have a favorite sports team. And let's just say, and I have no idea what's going on, I don't even want to know what's going on, but let's just say the Eagles came to me and they said, we need your help tonight to beat the Dallas Cowboys. And I would say, i got to preach tonight, I can't do it, sorry, i got something to do. But if they were to say, we need you, can I play football? I mean, I can throw the ball and maybe catch the ball as long as you're not going to tackle me and, you know, pile drive me into the dirt. I mean, I'm not interested in that, you know, but maybe catch a touchdown pass or whatever. But me to be a part of that, I mean, maybe as a token, you're like, we want you to, to lead us out in the field. But I mean, what does that really matter? That doesn't accomplish anything. That doesn't do anything. So I can be the honorary team captain and call the toy, coin toss. I mean, that really doesn't 
do anything as far as affecting the game. But if they said, we want you in there, in the game, participating in the game, we want you to strive together with us. Well, that would be a compliment. That would be saying something. But see, that's exactly what this ministry, this encouragement, this exhortation to pray is all about. You can get in the battle. You can, you can join in and be part of what God is doing and what God is accomplishing. Now, that doesn't mean that without your prayers that, you know, if you don't pray, nothing will get done. No, you and I are not that important. We're not that significant. However, what it does mean is that when we shirk our duty and our responsibility, when we don't pray, we forfeit our opportunity to be involved in what God is doing. And if you're a child of God, there's nothing more that motivates you, nothing that's more important to you than being arm in arm, doing what God wants you to do. Because that's what God has saved you for. That's your purpose. We can strive together with the evangelist in prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11 said, Ye also helping together by prayer for us. You know, we, we might look at missionaries around the world and we say, what can I do to help? And sometimes the, the distance, sometimes, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the time zone difference between here and there. Uh, we can't do a whole lot. You know, we, uh, every year, you know, we try to send the, these missionary care packages and we involve many of you and we thank you for those of you who adopted a missionary. And, but then even that's so restricted because of you know, what you can ship and what you can mail and when it'll arrive there, and if it'll arrive there and all those different variables. You say, what, what can I do to help? The greatest thing you can do to help, help together by prayer for them. Pray. There's an exhortation to pray. And in case we're struggling with like, okay, I know I'm supposed to pray for them, there's actually some requests. There's some specific things that Paul lays out. Like, maybe you don't know what to pray for. Let me give you two requests to pray for. There's a primary request and there's a secondary request. Look at the primary request. The primary request is regarding the word. He said, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. This primary request involves the word. And specifically, he says, pray that the word would have free course. And this request is about the progress of the word of God, because that idea of free course, the word, that phrase free course means to run. It means to rush, to have free and rapid progress. If you could imagine in your mind uh, a, uh, a race, a track and field race, where all the runners are getting in their starting blocks, all right, and they're getting ready to run. All right? That free course means an open lane whereby a runner can run as fast as possible so there can be free and rapid progress so that he can get to his goal, to the finish line, and do so first. That's the idea of the Word of God, that it would have free course, that it would run, it would have free and rapid progress to its goal. Now, we realize tonight that the word of God, and that's the, the idea here, that the word of the Lord may have free course. The word of God is a powerful thing. Amen. The word of God is described as a two-edged sword. The word of God is described as a fire. 
as a hammer that breaks in pieces. The Word of God is living. It's powerful. But the Word of God can be hindered. In fact, it can be hindered specifically by the enemy. You remember what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2 when we were looking at that? Oh, I, I, I don't know if I got that on here. But anyway, um, where it says, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once again, but Satan hindered us. You know, there's an enemy of the Word of God, and it is Satan himself. And he hinders the work of God. And specifically, there was something that, that, that Paul felt God wanted him to do, but it was Satan himself who hindered that work from taking place. One of the ways he, he does this, one of the ways he hinders the work from taking place, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, in whom the God of this world, there's Satan again, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. It is the enemy that, that hinders the word of God by blinding the minds, blinding the eyes, blinding the perception of those that believe not, just so that the light of the gospel cannot shine to them. The light of the gospel cannot uh, awaken their attention, cannot uh, uh, change their perception. It is the God of this world who is blinding those minds. There's a hindrance to the word of God. And that's why we pray that the word of the Lord would have free course. That nothing would stand in its way. That nothing would slow it down. That nothing would hold it back. Amen. Pray that the word of the Lord would have, or may have, free course. Not only is the word hindered by Satan, but it's also hindered specifically by opportunity. In Colossians 4 and verse number 3, there's that verse, I just got it in the wrong order. Colossians 4 and verse 3 um, it's, it talks about, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. Sometimes the gospel is hindered by opportunity. Specifically, the opportunity of a door of utterance. You deal with people. You're around people. There are times in which people are open and there are times in which people are closed. There are times in which people are ready to hear and times when people are not ready to hear. And it is God that needs to open that door so that the, when the word of the Lord is spoken, it can have free course. It can actually accomplish what God intended it to, com to accomplish. So sometimes the word is hindered by the enemy. Sometimes the word is hindered by opportunity. Sometimes the word is hindered by fear. And this is the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 who reveals this about himself. And, and I don't know about you, I read this and I almost have a hard time understanding or imagining this. That he would pray that utterance would be given unto him, unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which also I am an, an ambassador in bonds, that I, or that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul said, I need your prayers that I would be able to, to speak and to speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, perhaps this is a, a perception of Paul that we have, that I have. I mean, I just see Paul as someone who just had that ability, 
who just did it, who never struggled with being bold, who never struggled with the, 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 the battle between opening my mouth and not opening my mouth. I, I see him as just, you know, he just did it because he's the great Apostle Paul, but he's actually here in Ephesians requesting prayer and saying, I need boldness. I need boldness. You know, as we pray for others, pray for each other, we pray for our missionaries, our evangelists, we need to pray that they not be hindered by fear, that they would be able to open their mouth boldly as they ought to speak. Because when they open their mouth boldly, the Word of God comes out, and the Word of God can have free course. We're not opening our mouth boldly. We're the ones hindering the effectiveness of the Word of God because we're not actually speaking it. So the primary prayer request involves not only the progress of the Word of God, but then also its impact, the impact of the Word of God. It says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. This idea of the Word being glorified. And the idea of glorified is, means exalted or esteemed, magnified, and praised. In other words, he's, he's asking that, that these believers pray that God's word be responded to and therefore making God's word glorious. Now we understand that God's word is glorious all on its own. But a proper response to the word of God actually glorifies it. It magnifies it. The lives of those responding to it actually provide evidence and are living examples of the gospel's effectiveness. This is why I love hearing testimonies, especially testimonies of salvation. Because what happens is the word of God, the truth of God, the, 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 the plan of, of salvation and how God reconciles man to, to himself in your life with your testimony, you actually magnify it. You, you, you exalt it. You, you, you esteem it. You glorify God's word because of what happened in your life. You're living, breathing examples of how powerful the Word of God is. Amen. And you know, that's what we ought to be praying for. That as the evangelist, as the, the missionary, as the preacher goes forth, that, that Word of God would have free course, but also that it would be responded to in a way that glorifies and magnifies it. That it would be responded to by people who become living, breathing examples of the power of the gospel. That's what we ought to pray for. He mentions there at the end of verse number one, this glorification, this magnification, even as it is with you. That's an interesting phrase because Paul's basically saying, pray that there would be a response even as it is with you. Or in other words, God, would you help others to respond to your word in the same way that I Respond to your word. How do you respond to God's word? Could you pray, God, would you produce disciples who respond to your word, not just in salvation, but also in obedience? Could, could you produce disciples that obey God's word just like I do? Now, that, not in a prideful way or an arrogant way, but my example. You know, parents, you have, you have children. And it's one thing to say, well, I want my children to do that which is right. 
I want them to follow the Lord. I want them to be obedient to the Lord. But what if they obeyed the Lord even as it is with you? What if they followed the Lord just like you follow the Lord? In reality, that's more of what is going to happen than not. Because what is caught is more powerful and more meaningful than what is taught. You can say, this is what I want you to do. This is the path I want you to walk. But the path that you are actually walking is what's going to speak greater volumes to their life. Pray that people would obey the same way that you have obeyed. That kind of raises the level of importance to your own obedience. And so there's this exhortation to pray. The primary request is that the Word of God would have free course, would have free and open progress, and it would have an impact that would change people's lives. And as it's changing people's lives, it becomes more glorious and more magnified and more wonderful because we see it in action. That's, pro- that's request number one. But there's also a secondary request. And this request regard specifically involves deliverance. Verse 2, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. This request is for deliverance or for rescue, a freeing from potential harm. There are those who, when they hear the gospel, would desire to to harm or to, to hinder the gospel message from going forth. He mentions two in particular. One is unreasonable men, and of course the other is wicked men. The idea of unreasonable men are men who are evil, they're, they're wrong, and therefore they become dangerous and outrageous. Have you ever been kind of bewildered by the outrageous response to the gospel? I remember as a, as a young person, I was in my early 20s, and it was when we first sort of put together the good person test online. And we got that put out there and, and uh, um, you know, just kind of let it run on its own. We didn't do that much advertising. But one of, uh, in putting it together, one of my responsibilities was I receive all the, the responses, what people would say, and then either respond to those or, or forward those along, whatever, whatever that may be. And I remember as a young person being completely blown away by the anger and vitriol and nature that, I mean, there were emails just full of profanity. And it was just like, this is the simple, it's, it's a simple website with text on the screen. There's, there's literally millions and billions of these websites out there. Uh, anybody, anywhere could set one of them up. And yet, just because you read a little thing online, it causes you to explode in anger. Don't you think that's be just a little bit unreasonable? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to be like, aha, those deluded people, you know, uh, that's kind of funny, and move on, if that's what you believe? No, but there's something there. There's something there that convicts the heart of man, and there's that response from unreasonable men. In Thessalonica, Paul needed deliverance from unreasonable men. You remember the rent-a-mob? These these, uh, lewd fellows of the baser sort that were basically hired by the Jews to somehow create a mob scene and an uproar all in the effort to get rid of Paul and to disparage what he was saying? I mean, 
Who is this Apostle Paul? He's just one man. He just, or, you know, this little missions team. It's just Paul and Timothy and Silas, and they're, they're preaching a message. What damage could three guys do? Why do you have to completely set the city in an uproar in order to stop them? There's unreasonable men that are out there. They don't like the gospel. They don't like those that stand for truth. And they're unreasonable. And of course, we could say there's nothing more unreasonable than somebody's opposition to the gospel. The gospel is good news. And it's not good news for a select few. It's good news for everyone. How could you be opposed to that? Well, the the answer to that question lies in the, the nature of man and our rebellion against God. There is nothing more unreasonable than people's rejection of the gospel. So Paul says, pray that I would be delivered from, and we would be delivered from these unreasonable men. And not only unreasonable men, but wicked men. Wicked, that's the idea of like the devil. And that's the, the, the meaning of the word wicked. It's, it's just what he would do, what the devil would do. And as Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is in the city of Corinth. And sometime during, during the time that he was in Corinth, Paul needed deliverance from the Jews who specifically it talks about how he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath days and there were those who rejected the message and the wording in the book of Acts is they opposed themselves. They opposed themselves in rejecting the gospel and they started an insurrection against Paul in the city of Corinth. So much so in order to get what they want, they captured the chief ruler of the synagogue and they beat him up in just an attempt to get the Roman governor's attention. That was it. Just to cause enough chaos, to cause enough problems so that they could get Paul pushed out. They took some guy, and we don't even, we're not even told his specific involvement in the situation in the city of Thessalonica. Perhaps we can assume that maybe as the chief ruler, that he was the one who allowed Paul to speak in the synagogue. But here are these Jewish people taking their own ruler out of the synagogue, beating him up in front of the Roman governor just so that they could create a scene. That's wicked. That's demonic. That's like the devil. And I wonder if that had already happened by the time that Paul wrote this. It might have. We don't know the exact chronology. Either that or it's going to happen around the corner. And Paul is asking, would you pray that I be delivered from not only unreasonable men, but wicked men? Because we all need a little bit of a reality check. And here is the reality check. All men have not faith. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Now, that doesn't mean we get a defeatist attitude and and we're, we're not passionate about our job to preach the gospel. But the reality is there were four soils that Jesus spoke about. Only 25%, one out of the four, were responsive to the gospel in the right way. Narrow is the way that leads unto life. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. This is the reality. And if you're going to be involved in the gospel ministry, don't get your expectations that you're going to show up, you know, to do outreach one week and every door you knock on, every, you know, someone's going to kneel to get saved every single person you talk to. It's, it's not going to happen that way. All men have not 
faith. There are those who will oppose. There are those who no fault of your own will get in your face and will be offended by the very fact that you want to share the greatest message that the world has ever been given with them. Don't be surprised by that. That is the reality of what takes place. And as a, as a missionary, as an evangelist, then it's you, you, you know, your full-time job to be preaching the gospel. There will be those who oppose. There will be those who find ways to gum up the works, to mess things up, to cause trouble, to cause strife. And those preaching the gospel need to be delivered from these unreasonable and wicked men. And it seems... As we look across our world, as we follow the current events of our day, that the unreasonable and wicked men are not diminishing, it seems as though they are on the rise. And of course, we've spoken of and encouraged ourselves to to pray for some of our missionaries who are laboring in places around the world where by no other explanation other than it's a demonic spirit of hatred towards God's people, the Jews, and by extension, all Americans, that puts some of our very missionaries at grave risk as they preach the gospel, just because of their association as an American and as someone who they would see as from the West. It's a real thing. It's a real danger. This ought to be a motivation to us to pray, not only that the Word of God would, be, would go forth and, and have free course and be glorified, but also that those proclaiming God's Word would be delivered from the unreasonable and wicked men. So there's an exhortation to pray, and when we think about, in verse number 2, all that this means, these, these unreasonable and wicked men, and the danger that exists out there, we can kind of tend to to get a little bit scared, to get a little bit afraid. Oh no, perhaps we shouldn't be doing this. Perhaps we should pull back just a little bit. Perhaps we shouldn't be involved in that. And I think that's why the next three verses are here. Do you notice verse number three? That we may be delivered, verse two, from unreasonable wicked men, for all men have not faith, but. That word but is a conjunction. A conjunction joins two different thoughts. Now, in this case, he's going to contrast with those two different thoughts, but they are connected. Yes, there are unreasonable and dangerous men that are out there. However, but the Lord is faithful. There are dangers out there. Yes, there is opposition to the gospel, but here Paul's encouraging them to confidence. You can have confidence in this fact God is faithful. Deliverance is needed from unreasonable and wicked men. But the Lord, our Master, the one we serve, He's faithful. He's faithful. Yes, there are dangers out there. Yes, there's opposition to the gospel. But God is faithful. You never know what evil men might do in opposition to the gospel, but you will always know that God will always be faithful. No matter what, He is going to be faithful. You notice uh, Paul's emphasis in these next three verses. He says something over and over and over again in each verse. See if you can pick it up. Verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. Verse 5. And 
the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Do you notice the focus is here? The Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Why? Because he is faithful. God is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. He is dependable. And he's demonstrated that over and over again. In fact, I think in these verses, Paul is is reminding them of the faithfulness of God as it's being demonstrated in their lives. Three specific ways in which the faithfulness of God is demonstrated in his goodness to his own people. Notice what Paul says God will do, not only in them, but through them and for them. So specifically, look in verse 3. This is God's faithfulness. And I'll just add here real real quickly, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24, where, where he reminded the believers the last time he wrote to them, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. What is God doing? What is God doing on behalf of his people? Well, two things. That is establishing and keeping. This is what God was going to do for them. He says, the Lord is faithful. Who shall? God will do this. He shall establish you and keep you from evil. Establishing or establishing has the idea of strengthening, of making firm. It, it means to set fast. And when I, I hear that word set and set fast, I think of, of concrete. All right, And how you mix up concrete. You add water to that, that bag of, uh, of powder mix, you know, concrete mix, and you add water to it and you stir it up. And then you may, perhaps you're digging a hole, you're setting a post or whatever, and, and you stir that up, you mix that up, and you pour that into that hole. And when you pour it in, I mean, it's almost like water. You can stick your hand in it. Not that you should do that. Um, but you can stick your hand in it. And you, of course, if you're setting something, perhaps you actually set some bolts in that, in that concrete, and it's pretty much fluid. But if you leave that alone, guess what's going to happen? It's going to set. It's going to get firm. It's going to get hard. Is going to get strong. And that's this idea that God is going to strengthen you. He's going to set you fast. This is what God is going to do for you. Not only that, not only is he going to strengthen you and make you firm, he's also going to keep you. And the idea of keeping is protecting. It's watching, guarding, uh, keeping them or protecting them from evil. And specifically in this case, I think that the evil refers to the idea of hurt and harm that would come from the evil one who is trying to to hinder the work of the gospel. This is what God will do for you. This is a demonstration of his faithfulness on your behalf. God is faithful. And because God is faithful, you can pray. Because you've experienced God's faithfulness in your life, it motivates you to pray that God would be faithful to protect those that are uh, preaching the gospel. That God would be faithful to use his word to bring folks to salvation. That's what God will do for you. But in verse number four, not only are the, he points out the, the faithfulness of God demonstrated in what God will do for you, but also demonstrated specifically in what, will, what God will do through you. Verse number four, we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. So the Lord is faithful and that faithfulness inspires Paul to say we have confidence. We're sure. What are we sure of? Well, we're we're sure of what God is going to do through you. 
and specifically through you, he's going to incline your heart to obedience. This is the prayer from King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 58. He's praying to God and, and he's praying that God might incline our hearts unto him to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments with he, which he commanded our fathers. This is what God does in the believer's heart. He inclines us, he, he draws us to be obedient to him, and God then empowers that obedience to him. Specifically, this empowerment comes in two different ways. God's empowerment uh, enables us to overcome the inertia problem. The inertia problem is that first phrase, that ye both do. You know what inertia is, right? That which is still, it's a lot harder to get moving an object which is still. You have to overcome the fact that that thing is just set in place and it's not moving. It takes a little bit of extra effort to get the ball rolling, so to speak, than it is to keep that ball rolling. There's that inertia problem. And you know what? When we get kind of in this, this, uh, this state as believers. We get kind of comfortable where we are. We get kind of okay with the level of obedience, the, the, the areas in which we're involved, the area in, in which we're surrendered And when we're serving the Lord, we're following the Lord, we just get comfortable there and we're kind of not challenged by God's word anymore. We kind of have this inertia problem. And God has to come along and move us a little bit. It's the power of God that enables that obedience, enables us to overcome the inertia problem. But then there's also the continuance problem. This is the the faithfulness that ye will both do and will do in the future the things that we command you. This is the 25 years later, and you're still teaching the same Sunday school class. The 30 years later, and you're still coming to outreach every Tuesday night or Saturday morning. This is the the 15 years later, and and you're still being faithful and witnessing at at your job to the perhaps even the same people that that you've witnessed to before. This is the continuance problem. This is when you say, I've done this for so long, certainly now, I mean, now is the time to kind of put it into neutral, kind of relax, let it coast. No, we need God's empowerment. We need God's help. And if we'll determine, yes, by God's grace, I will, then he will enable that obedience. He will enable you to overcome the continuance problem. Have you experienced that in your life? I know I have. There's been some times where I've been parked and God just had to push a little bit, get me going. There's been some times where I've kept going and I'm thinking, you know what, Uh, can I quit now? No, it's it's time to keep going. Time to be faithful. And God, with his, his ability, he empowers that faithful obedience. This is what God does through us as believers. But there's one more. God's faithfulness is demonstrated in His goodness to His people in what God does specifically in you. Verse 5. What does God do in you? And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. God is faithful, and God is faithful to direct my heart. idea of directing is guiding, making straight, removing the obstacles. And God is doing that. He's guiding, and He's specifically guiding our hearts. 
our hearts. Those are, that's, those are our thoughts. Those are our desires. Those are our feelings. That's our mind, our will, our emotions. And have you ever noticed that all of those things, our heart needs to be directed? That our heart sometimes wanders away, sometimes gets off the path, and God has to direct us specifically. He's got to direct our hearts into, what does he say in verse number five? He's got to direct our hearts into the love of God. Do you know how God directs our hearts to love him? As we learn about and we realize the amount of love that God has for us. Because we love him because he first loved us. Sometimes God needs to direct our hearts into loving him again the way we should. Perhaps even the way we used to at one time, but that love has sort of grown cold and we need some direction. We need some some curbing of our hearts back to where we belong, where, where we need to be. That God would direct our hearts not only in love, but also in this idea, he uses the phrase here, into the patient waiting for Christ. Patient waiting, that phrase is, is just one, it's translated from one word, and that word means steadfastness. It means endurance. Can I remind you of what these believers here in Thessalonica were facing? It's not as though they didn't have any dangers. It's not as though there weren't any unreasonable and wicked men who were threatening them. There were. They were in a time of great persecution. They were in a time of great stress, great anxiety on them because of their choice to do what's right. And they need this patient waiting. They need this steadfastness, this endurance, the power to withstand hardship or stress with an inward fortitude. Patient waiting. Steadfastness. The idea of enduring and continuing to to endure. Being faithful as we do, like Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, as we look for, let's see, there we go, get, get both of them there, in love and endurance, as we look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Prayer and faithfulness. It is the faithfulness of God as we think about that, as we meditate on on that, as we ask ourselves the question, has God been faithful to me? Have you experienced God's faithfulness? As a believer, if if you're truly saved, you you should be able to look at these things. What did God do for you? What is God doing through you? What is God doing in you? It's all evidence of God's faithfulness. Has God been faithful to you? And you should be able to say without a shadow of a doubt, yes, God has been faithful to me. And that should motivate our prayers that God would be faithful to those who are carrying out His purpose and His will. It ought to motivate us to pray that God would be faithful to those preaching the gospel. God would be faithful to those who are in the ministry. That God would be faithful to, in the lives of those who have dedicated themselves to preaching the gospel. That doesn't necessarily mean just someone who is called into what we might term full-time service, but it also involves some of us in this auditorium who are doing the work of God. <laughs> May we pray because we've experienced God's faithfulness. Pray that God will be faithful with his word and cause it to have free course and be glorified 
be obeyed just as as it's been obeyed in, in our lives. May God's faithfulness to us encourage us to be to be faithful in prayer, asking God's faithfulness to be shown on behalf of the word as it's going forth, as people respond to it and glorify that word as it goes forth. We ought to pray because God is faithful. We ought to pray because we have experienced God's faithfulness. And we want to see that same thing take place in other people's lives.